You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined on Meaning of Life TV. Uh, my name is Arya Cohen-Wade, and I'm your host today. And my guest is Alyssa Wilkinson. Alyssa, could you introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I'm Alyssa. I'm a staff writer at uh, Vox.com, where I cover film. Uh, thank you for coming on. Um, our topic today is a, a new film that came out within the past couple months called First Reformed. Um, it is directed by Paul Schrader, who uh, had a career as started his career as a screenwriter for uh, Martin Scorsese films, uh, Taxi Driver and Raging Bull, I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, it stars Ethan Hawke. So maybe people have seen heard something about this film. Um, but it's you know kind of an art film. I saw it in our my local art theater. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe other people haven't heard that much about it. But it was really interesting, um, and I thought it was so interesting <laughs> that I wanted to talk to someone who had thought more about it uh, on this platform. Um, and yeah, so can you kind of how would you describe this film if you're trying to convince someone to see it? Yeah, I mean it's it's useful to know going into it that Schrader did write. Taxi Driver and Raging Bull, and he, you know, made American Gigolo and all these movies. But he, um, before all that, wrote a book called Transcendental Style in Film, which was his attempt to look at theology and uh, the films of a few um, filmmakers uh, who he sort of deemed having a style that was supposed to draw in the transcendent. So that was um, Ozu, Dreyer, and Brisson. And so this is the first film he's made in that style at 71 after having had a whole career. So this is a film that feels um, maybe a little more like a European film than most American ones do. It's about a minister who uh, lives in upstate New York and is pastoring a church that has maybe like 10 people in it, first reformed. Um, and nearby is a mega church that uh, has many more attendees. And he kind of goes through, I guess, a dark night of the soul. Um, <laughs> and he's uh, sort of experiencing this real crisis of faith and of his health. Um, and a lot of it comes from an encounter he has with a young man who's a um, kind of a radical environmental activist and really challenges him on his ideas about the future of humanity and whether there's any reason to have hope or to bring a child into the world. Um, and that kind of sets off uh, in this minister um, who's Reverend Toller, um, sets off like a real crisis for him um, that spirals into, well, something very, very big and uh, pretty shocking, I would say, for most people who see the film, but it really sits with you for that reason. Yeah, so I, I should say that um, we're going to try to avoid spoilers in the first part of this conversation and uh, talk about some of the themes more generally, and then uh, we'll give a, you know, spoiler spoiler alert. If you do want to <laughs> see this film, it's, I think it's best to go and not, not know exactly yes. what's going to happen because there are some big surprises, and then we'll and we'll talk about some of those uh, surprises in the second part of this film. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I should say that we'll link to your review in Vox and you also did an interview in Vox with, with Paul Schrader. That was, that was really interesting. I think you would probably need to see the film to both appreciate the interview. And since you get into spoilers, um, I would not recommend reading that, uh, reading that interview before you see the film. Um, so how, okay. So you mentioned in your review that you, come from, you were raised in a Christian environment mm-hmm. and you also happen to come from the same part of upstate New York where the film is set in, in Albany. Um, yeah. 
how did that affect how you viewed, viewed the film? Well, I knew going in that that was true. <laughs> I had a couple of friends who had seen it before I did. Um, and they said, oh, this is, he made a movie for you. And I was like, oh, great. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I mean, Paul Schrader, you know, he grew up in a very conservative, um, like Dutch Calvinist community. Um, he says he didn't watch movies till he was about 17 and he went to Calvin college. Um, and, uh, and then he went and made this movie all these years later. And it is set in Albany County where I was brought up and I have a similar background. I didn't even really watch movies, um, barely any until I was uh, out of college pretty much. So I think knowing that, knowing the place that he's coming from is kind of interesting and helpful, um, in seeing the film that it really is, uh, uh, an authentic, I think, grappling with something, um, with matters of like meaning and faith and doubt and all of those things that comes from a place of, um, someone who knows, uh, what it means to, to struggle with all of those things himself. I mean, he's never been in the place of that character. Um, but there's definitely a lot of that, uh, that crops up in the film. And so, I mean, you know, critics come at movies from all different places. This has been a very, very, very widely praised film, um, by pretty much every, every critic who's reviewed it. But I think that, you know, it's interesting to kind of go in with a, with a personal connection to the material. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a side note, um, how did you end up becoming a movie critic if you didn't really see movies <laughs> until after you graduated from college? Um, well, I was bored at my job, <laughs> um, which was in technology. And uh, at the same time, I had started um, dating a filmmaker um, who had, we've been married now for 12 years, but we... Um, I just kind of got interested in films for that reason. And also um, we live in New York city and we can go to all kinds of repertory films. So I kind of got a back education real fast just by like showing up to film forum on the weekends and seeing whatever they were playing. Um, Like for instance, I remember very early on was the Boris Karloff festival, which meant I saw like, you know, Frankenstein, (laughs) it was just all those films. So, um, yeah, so that's how I got into it. I realized that it was something that was actually really worth exploring and thinking about and especially writing about. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, that's probably a a very different perspective from most other film critics. Yeah. Um, (laughs) so speaking of art house European cinema, um, you know, I went into this not knowing that it was going to be filled with references to, uh, you know, great films from the 1950s in Europe and mm-hmm. I have to admit, I have seen none of the movies that I've read about being referenced in this film, but there's one mm-hmm. that's apparently a very direct reference, Diary of a Country Priest. Yeah. And then a couple other ones that he, that also influenced the film. Could you talk a little bit about those, those influences? Yeah. Um, well, Diary of a Country Priest is very much a similar framing device to this film. I really think people could easily see the film and only know about the references and not have seen the film. Like for instance, you can't really see diary of a country priest. It's almost impossible to find. And a lot of these other films are too. Um, but in that one, it's a, it's about a minister who basically experiences a crisis of faith. There's also sort of a similar um, voiceover thing going on. There's a diary, which is a big part of this film. Um, and, 
Schrader has also said there's like some Tarkovsky floating around in this film. People keep telling who are much more well versed in in these films um, keep telling me about things they spotted that they think are references to another film, and it's probably true that uh, Schrader just has all this stuff in his head, and so you write the movie and that's what comes out. Um, but I do think you know what's most interesting is that he is the techniques he used are what he had written about so long ago in this book, and they've been um, the book has been updated and just reissued with a new chapter from him on slow cinema. Um, and I'd really recommend it. I, um, he's a very good writer, which is a silly thing to say. Of course he's a good writer, but, um, it's a very lucid explanation of slow cinema, which, um, is sort of the cinema of watching things happen rather than forcing the kind of the viewer to like keep track of this with the story as it, as it's kind of on its more hectic pace. So, um, in this one, the style really involves things like long takes that you have to be involved with to kind of draw meaning from them. Like you can't, you can't sit passively in this film. You really need to be um, connected to it. And also a big one is, and this is not, I'm not going to give it away right now, but the ending, he had left purposely vague. He doesn't have an opinion about what's happening at the end of the film. And he told me that um, different audiences um, at test screenings or at festivals would give him uh, their take on what they think happened at the end of the film. And he would purposely change something a little bit so that it became more ambiguous. So a lot of this is about like having to invest yourself in the film and really being kind of thrown off of your normal viewing patterns and thus like entering a different way of, of watching a movie. Mm-hmm. And we will get to the ending in our mm-hmm. post, uh, the, the spoiler, yes. spoiler special part of, of the, uh, of this conversation. So how did you think, I mean, I, um, how did you think Christianity was presented in the film? Like, I was kind of coming in thinking, knowing that it was a film about religion, but also kind of, I guess, with the prejudice that, like, a lot of religious people in, you know, secular films are often presented as, you know, the villain or the object of satire. And then you have Cedric the Entertainer mm-hmm. under his birth name playing the, um, the megachurch pastor. Mm-hmm. And so then I was kind of, so that kind of set me up to thinking like, well, you know, he's going to be like the comic relief kind of character. Right. I mean, he said he's, it's in the name center of the entertainer. Um, but then it, it was, I, I was surprised by how kind of like sincere mm-hmm. the presentation of, of Christian faith was. There's like two, two minor, very minor characters who are presented negatively, like a teenager and someone else. Um, mm-hmm. who are, you know, presented as like bigoted Christians. But other than that, it's, it seemed to me as someone who's Jewish and only knows Christianity as like what I absorb from the culture. Yeah. Um, it seemed to me like very, very sincere, very different. Was, was there, was, I guess, uh, my question for someone who knows, is more well versed in Christianity would be like, did the Cedric character, were the things he said, like, Like, was it supposed to be, like, prosperity gospel light, or was it supposed to be, like, this is, like, a a sincere presentation of Christian faith? Yeah, I mean, it's his character is fascinating to me because we're kind of set up to believe that his character is going to be this um, uh, charlatan or something like that. Like, you know, we hear him on the radio. There's instant, you know, connections to things we know about radio preachers or things we might even just think about radio preachers is like a big media arm of this 
of this church. But that's really common among American evangelical churches to have, you know, your podcast and your radio broadcast and like maybe even a TV broadcast. And, um, uh, and it's especially interesting because, um, Albany County is considered one of the least religious places in the country, um, polling wise. So it's, it's just interesting to sort of see those two things come together with him. Um, I found him to be pretty authentic though. Actually, the whole film is a very authentic, um, grappling with Christian faith. It never suggests that, um, that this is a, uh, a thing to be questioned so much as that people feel those questions just normally, like that the, the experiences that we have inform the way we encounter our faith, our religion, however we kind of, um, navigate the, that part of the world. And, um, and his character in particular, you go in expecting a bunch of cliches from him and you get some, um, but you also get like, he is also kind of the voice of reason, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. A lot of the things he says to Ethan Hawke's character, um, are very reasonable and correct, like about, about the future, about his own health, of uh, all these kinds of things. Um, and so I, I think that's perfect meta casting to have someone who's known as, you know, an entertainer or a comedian play that character. Um, because it really helps bring out how much of, um, American evangelicalism in particular is very, very personality driven and very much about you go to the church because you like the pastor, not because you belong to the denomination or something like that. Um, that's just what's true about the whole enterprise. Um, and so, you know, for better or worse. And so a lot of the interesting parts of this film come in to the fact that Ethan Hawke's character is not doing so well as a pastor. And we know this because there's nobody at his church. There's Mm -hmm. like 10 people. And on the flip side, we have this other pastor um, who has this, you know, vibrant, thriving church um, that appears to be diverse, all these things that we're not used to expecting from maybe that kind of a church. Um, But we know that like he's successful because of that. Um, And so that personality driven aspect, I think of, of the package of evangelicalism really comes through. Um, you know, and at least from my perspective, it's a very, you know, there are things about the characters that seem like they are, you've seen them before, but that's just because they actually match up with reality. Um, those, those are real people. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think most people would say that they had been one of them at one time or another. Um, you know, and there are an increasing number of movies that really do take Christian faith pretty seriously, I think, but there, you have to kind of be looking for them. A lot of them are in independent cinema. Um, a lot of them have more Catholics perhaps than Protestants. Um, and where you don't find them generally is in like faith-based movies, which tend to be pretty pat. Um, so this is in contrast to that. Yeah. And, and your interview with Schrader, he makes that point about the faith-based mm-hmm. movie. And I don't think I've ever seen like a movie like that. Um, but he says it's, they're using the basic Hollywood formula mm-hmm. and just like adding the religion in, whereas this film is definitely not like the basic Hollywood formula. And yeah. It's and trying he, something different. Yeah. And he makes a good point in the interview that, um, there are in his sort of formulation, there are two kinds of really, he's talking about Protestant churches. Um, there's the big kind of like entertainment screens at the front. Everyone's sort of facing the front and there's going to be like a, show that happens. Um, that's real common. And then there's the other kinds that's like very quiet and contemplative. 
um, you know, maybe there's not a lot of, uh, you know, words on screens or like big lights or anything like that. It's just like you and kind of meditation and your thoughts and there's, you know, preaching and things like that. But, um, and so in the film, he really contrasts those two pretty strongly. Um, and as he said in the interview, it's probably not all that surprising that a lot of Christian filmmakers, you know, they're formed in these churches where, the way you tell the Christian story is through like entertainment kind of things um, that they go straight to the Hollywood melodrama for the way they're going to tell their stories uh, instead of something that actually kind of evokes the divine mm-hmm. or the transcendent. Um, I think it's never stated explicitly, but it seems like it, that he's supposed to be like in a Dutch reformed, if that's a great term. It's Dutch reformed. Yeah, Do definitely. You- no, and so I don't. I really don't know the like history yeah. of these things. Do you know anything about how like was it was that just um, Schrader's choice because that was his the, the denomination he was raised in? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple different um, reformed denominations that come out of the Dutch uh, Calvinist tradition, um, but he was in one of the more severe ones. They're not all like that. Um, that church is not quite doesn't appear to be quite like that to me. I'm actually one of the backstory questions I really do have about this is how how this guy ended up in that denomination because it just doesn't feel quite like that's a natural fit mm-hmm. but yeah I mean there it's an immigrant um it's a it was an immigrant denomination brought to the U.S. and Canada by immigrants and um you'll find a wide variety of expressions within it but definitely he kind of went for the more severe one um okay. the more kind of austere variety do you think he picked Albany because of the Dutch immigrant history of Albany? Um, so that's what I thought. And I asked him about it. And he said that he picked Albany because he wanted a place that would have old churches. So that has to be the East coast. He wanted a place that had winter. So you have to be North of DC basically. And a place that he could reasonably double because he was shooting it in New York city. So that's actually in Staten Island and long Island. Oh really? Huh. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, I knew it wasn't upstate. There's no such place as Snowbridge, New York, but, um, but that's why he said it there. And yeah, there is a huge Dutch heritage there. All those streams and a bunch of the cities are named for um, various Dutch words and places and people. So um, it makes some sense. Yeah, the the polluted river they go to is called Kill instead, yeah. of, instead of river. I, so I live in Rochester, New York, okay, which yeah. does not have like a strong Dutch heritage, but does yeah. have the, um, some post-industrial blight and the snow. Uh-huh. And yeah. when, I saw, when I saw the film with my wife, she said, like, you wouldn't want to see the film in winter because it's very like the landscape is bleak. Mm-hmm. And then yep. if you and had to go very much on purpose. Yeah. yeah. Um, OK, I'm trying to think if there's anything else before. Oh, let's talk about the performances. OK. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I thought Hawk, I thought they were um, very good overall. Like Hawk seems like he could win an Oscar for this role and Amanda Seyfried, Seyfried, however you mm-hmm. pronounce her name, she was quite good as well. And then uh, Michael, uh, yeah. the actor I didn't know, um, I thought he was very good and creepy and yeah. uh, played that character really well. I mean, a thing that particularly Hawk is doing is what Schrader called the lean back performance, which is like never getting too close to the audience. So like Ethan Hawk, I love Ethan Hawk, but he does have this like way of sort of in his other films of like grinning at people I think like you always kind of feel like he's close to you when he's on screen and this film Schrader like went to him and said please always be giving distance like if it feels chilly it's because it's on purpose that's the idea it's so that you and the audience have to lean 
in um, in order to, to kind of be there with it. Um, and yeah, there's some talk of, I mean, I, I, Oscar chatter is like the bane of my existence, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, people are talking about it and I would not be, I'm sure he'll pop up at least in critic circle awards at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Let, should we start our spoiler? Sure. Spoiler section? Okay. <laughs> so if, if you, viewers and listeners, if you've been enticed so far, um, to go see this movie, pause now, run to your local art cinema, see, see the movie, and then c- come back and hit play again. Okay, so the 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 first twist in the movie, which really shocked me, was um, Michael's suicide. Yeah, um, I, and it's meant to be very shocking. Yeah, so the the I mean, you don't you don't see him commit suicide on screen, but you see his body and, uh, with the shotgun next to him and his uh, brains and blood. Mm-hmm. scattered over the snow and a very, very like raw and explicit uh, portrayal of what it would look like if someone shot, you know, shot themselves in the head. Yeah. And, and that, that just upended the plot because I thought, I thought where this was going to be going was going to be kind of like a, a like weird redemption narrative kind of thing of Toller, um, you mm-hmm. know, showing Michael that he could live on the earth and um, may, maybe, maybe some kind of romance happening with Amanda Seyfried, but uh, yeah, yeah, that didn't happen at all. No. Yeah. I mean, it's meant to be just as shocking as it is to the character because he's not expecting that either at all for a lot of reasons. They see early on, like, Oh, they're going to meet later. He texts them to meet late. Like there's a plan there. Um, And the, you know, the suicide is a, um, a different reaction, I think, than he was expecting to the conversation that they had. And of course that would throw you into absolute like existential crisis as a pastor in particular, because you've been talking to this guy and trying to kind of help him through his, through his own despair. And then you think, did I cause that? Right? Like, was it something I said? Um, And that's never answered. That's something that we're supposed to leave open. um, Just like Toller has to. Yeah, so we should, uh, I don't know if we noted this in the first half, um, Michael had constructed a suicide vest mm-hmm. that the wife found, and it, I don't think it was ever stated exactly what he planned on doing with it, um, nope. but uh, the wife calls up Toller, he takes it, takes it away, and like stuffs it in a box in, in his closet, um, so that's a little bit of like a Chekhov's gun kind of thing of like, mm-hmm. the suicide vest, will it, will it come back or not? Um so then, yeah, so the I guess the next really surprising part of the movie to me was the uh the scene where they lay on top of each other, yeah, and yeah, do you want to just des- describe what happens there yeah, i mean so the the wife Mary is um pregnant, and the imagery there, a pregnant woman named Mary is like not incidental, um right. but she's pregnant, um she's broken up by. Michael's um, suicide, but she also is trying to figure out sort of how she's going to carry on and where she's going from here. And she's going to, you know, have her baby and raise it. Um, But she's having anxiety and she comes over to Toller's, um, uh, the, the little parish house that he lives in and um, talks to him about it. And then says like a way that we used to calm, I used to calm down was that Michael and I would, lay face to face and like basically arm to arm, leg to leg and just lay there fully clothed um, and breathe. And this sounds to me like a, actually like a pretty profound meditation technique. It kind of makes sense um, in a lot of ways. And so 
uh, Toller says, well, do you want to do that? And she says, yes. And, um, and they do. And then in the film, their bodies start rising from the ground at right. that point. So, so is, the naive viewer such as me would think, okay, they're going to kiss right now. Right. And they don't. <laughs> but then, um, um, but then they levitate, they levitate instead. So like the, the film yeah. is like total realism up to that point, And like the camera barely like moves at all. And mm-hmm. yeah, everything, just total realism. And then this like shock of like a surreal, yeah. surreal experience. Yeah. And I mean, it's meant to shock you at, you know, at every turn, the film does not want to do whatever it is that you're expecting it to do. So this is another place where it takes that and goes way off book. And um, this is one of the two places in the film that Schrader has said he kind of broke with the transcendental style, which has a lot of realism built into it and just went for something totally fantastical. But the images that then come up, which kind of look a little bit like a screensaver or something like that. I mean, it's hard not to think of that, but there are images of like pollution um, and waste and um, all these things that I think really what we've done is like floated into Toller's headspace at that point. That's all he can think of. He, he can't, he can't calm down. Um, right. So, so they're, so they're like soaring through or the camera is kind of st- stable, like behind them. And on Toller and uh, Amanda Seyfried's character Mary's underneath, and yeah, they're kind of soaring through these different landscapes. It's a little, yeah, you said it's a, it, I mean, it's green screen, obviously, or, or computer graphics, and mm-hmm. there was a slight cheesiness aspect to it, like after the initial shock weighed off, and I couldn't help but think of this scene in Big Lebowski where he has the the dream sequence and he's soaring over Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, I mean, the whole thing is shot on digital, and that's why it looks that way, uh, which is partly financial, but also partly just because. Um, that, that digital kind of flatness, um, really actually plays into what the film is about, which is this sort of like, um, corruption of the earth, right? On film, it would look really rich. Um, and flattening it out actually gives us more of a feel of like where Toller's head is at. Right. So it's, so this, I can't, I can't remember how the, does does it just like fade to black and then start a new scene? After yeah. that part, so yeah, yeah. so no, we don't. We aren't given like a hint of how we're supposed to understand nope. this um, moment. I, when it first started, I thought it was like, oh my god, something, you know, something uh, crazy and mystical is happening. But then it seems more like we're being transported into, yeah, you know, as you said, into yeah. Toller's perspective and what, what he's thinking about during this experience. Um, so then, the kind of the plot, the plot point is that it's the two hundred fiftieth anniversary of the founding of the little church um, mm-hmm. that he runs and um, he needs to prepare for the like rededication ceremony and uh, the governor is coming and then someone else is coming who's this guy named Balk B-A-L-Q mm-hmm. who is a local industrialist mm-hmm. and who uh, as Toller researches he finds out that Bulk Industries or whatever is like one of the top polluters in the state. And, and also one of the biggest donors to the church to abundant life. Right. So um, he, yeah. so this guy is, um, not portrayed favorably and, uh, seems like, you know, he's portrayed like an asshole. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, a guy who makes his money, uh, <laughs> we wouldn't approve of. And then, uh, like spends it piously. And I think at one point, I think it's the, the, um, the like media studio in abundant life is like the bulk yeah. studio or something. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So there's kind of like, I don't know. I, I interpreted it in a way that like Toller, like 
I mean, Toler starts to merge with like Michael's spirit. Maybe that's too mm-hmm. putting it into like a loosey goosey way, but he kind of takes up the mantle that Michael left when he died. I think he is the computer he uses Michael's computer. Yeah. Yep. He took it um, at Mary's request. Right. And he's looking at all these articles about, you know, yeah, about pollution, about kind of environmental catastrophe um, and and walk industries, which is polluting and it also is a huge donor, which, you know, that is uh, remarkably realistic. There have been quite a few articles lately about um, people who are afraid, you know, people who would say they're like conservative evangelicals who also maybe don't approve of things that are going on in politics right now, but they're afraid to speak out because their donor base would drop them. Um, and I've heard this from so many pastors and so many people who run different organizations. Um, so I thought that was actually like a pretty keen insight um, that this guy, you know, Ed Balk, Toller goes to meet him at a diner to talk about the um, the rededication ceremony and Balk kind of blows up at him for saying that, you know, maybe pollution is not good. <laughs> um, and he says, well, there won't be anything political in the ceremony, right? right. So, and- so Balk is pissed off because, about um, Michael's uh, funeral ceremony at which uh, uh, the youth choir from uh, the megachurch sang like a political song or something. Mm -hmm. Yes. And and, yeah, and Toller was officiating that service. Mm -hmm. And then this is what, um, you know, where Bulk is like, don't don't make it get political. Don't make it get political. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So does anything else happen before we're, I, I mean, I, we haven't discussed his relationship with the the choir. Um, oh, the right, choir the leader. choir director. Yeah, so, I mean, all we really know is that they had some kind of a, it seems like they dated for a little bit, um, although that's never said explicitly, but it's that seems pretty obvious. And she's still into him, and she wants to take care of him, and he he's just really repulsed by her, I think. Um, he can't. I think she reminds him, you know, he's divorced. His son died in the Iraq war um, after he asked him to, to join the military and um, he feels guilty. And I think the idea of having someone in his life who, um, who was just like more of the same (laughs) is really distressing to him. Um, And yeah, I mean the most startling scene in the film for me, honestly, wasn't the end. It was the bit where he just turns on her kind of viciously um, in the choir loft and says, you know, just some really horrible things to her. He says something um, like, I despise you. Or, or something. I despise you. And yeah. And, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's the kind of, uh, anger that we haven't seen from him. And it's a point at which she just, she doesn't deserve that. Like, it's not like she's done anything to make him hate her in such a horrible way, but he's just, he's gone at this point. He's like, um, the way Schrader put it to me was that it's, um, you know, it's this sort of fantasy of martyrdom that he's come up with that um, is the only way he can make himself feel better about his own misery and despair. Yeah, I, I thought it, there was some, maybe some, like, being repulsed at uh, female sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but all, yeah, but also if he's going to martyr himself, then he wants to, like, make himself repugnant to the people that loved him so they'll be less less upset yeah. about it. Although the only person he never does that to is Mary. Um, and he, you know, I, I've seen people struggle to kind of suss out what their relationship is, but it really is like a very good 
um, like friendship, um, for most of the film, you know, it's, it's, and arguably the whole film, um, that he really actually cares about her and is worried about her and doesn't want her in the church, um, at the, at the dedication because he's planning to blow it up. <laughs> right. Yeah. So he, he tells her, you know, multiple times, don't come to the dedication when she's like one of the 10 people who comes mm-hmm. to a, will come to a Sunday service. Um, and yeah, so then we, moving to the final part of the film, he, uh, we see him, uh, putting on the suicide vest and getting ready. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he, and the, the, uh, you know, the congregation is full of people and including, uh, Ed Balk and, uh, the governor of New York. Um, and then he sees Mary, uh, walking in and has to change his mind. So, I mean, what did you or, think? Yeah. Well, okay. So, what, what what did you think of like? Did it make sense within the film that he was decided to become a suicide bomber? Yeah, I think he's uh, in the sense that he stopped thinking rationally at all. Um, he's he's operating. The film makes it very clear that the pollution of the earth and the pollution of his body are sort of of a piece. Um, just he's drinking like a fish, <laughs> lots and lots of whiskey. Oh he, yeah, one thing I noticed is you never see him eating. No, <laughs> he never you, eats. You, you see him or drinking he, whiskey. Or yeah, we and then he, um, you know, he's like his urine is got blood in it, like he's falling apart, um, and he's sort of uh, has a polluted body, which you know the megachurch pastor says as much to him that's connected to the pollution of the world and we can also um, assume that's the pollution of his mind as well that he's just kind of gone beyond any point of reason and also beyond faith so i think it's you know the arc is really from him moving from something like faith to something not just like doubt but like active disbelief um that this is um pointless like his guilt over i believe many things his son dying uh michael dying like all of these things have really left him in a place where he doesn't know how to end it and the way schrader thinks about it is that he he wants to end it and so he's going to try and figure out a way to do this that would be holy in in some kind of a twisted way um he called it the jihad mentality um uh that he he wants to kill himself, but suicide in at least an Augustinian formulation is a sin. Um, but it could not be a sin if it was for a greater purpose. Um, and the example he uses is Samson in the Bible who brings down this temple that he's in in order to kill all these wicked people and also kills himself. So in that formulation, that was not, that itself was not a sin. So to do this and sort of bring down this house full of wicked people, um, as he sees it at the, um, at the dedication in some twisted way would be perhaps a righteous act. So really he's, he's kind of tugging at the idea of religious extremism in a lot of ways, which manifests all across the board in all kinds of ways. Um, but like what would drive a person to the point where they might get there? Um, and this is one answer. Mm-hmm. There's actually, there's a scene um, before the, before the final sequence where he's talking to Cedric and uh, Cedric's character says something like, you're always in the garden. Um, like he's always in the garden of Gethsemane, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And he is yes. 
his his faith is like entirely suffering at this point, mm-hmm. or his mm-hmm. his own internal suffering is wrapped up with his faith. I thought that was. I mean, what did you what did you make of that part? Well, it's funny because you know the Garden of Gethsemane in the Bible is where Jesus sort of prays, um, like, please to to God, like, please don't let me have to do this, meaning crucifixion, um, and and obviously that prayer is not answered. Um, but it's like, I believe in one of the gospels, it says that he was like sweating blood, basically, mm-hmm. like it was that stressful. Um, and so that scene, he says, yeah, yeah, you're always in Gethsemane, but like the, I don't know if this is what the pastor means, but to me, it's like, but you're not Jesus, right? You're not the savior of the world. You just think you are. And so there's this sort of narcissism to thinking like, I'm as important as, as Christ. And the answer is like, no, of course you're not. Like you can't save the world one, you know, and that's kind of true of Michael as well. Right. Like you, you, that's where his despair comes from is that he wants to be able to save the world and he can't. Um, So there is a kind of narcissism to thinking you can save the world um, and to acting as if the world's weight is on your shoulder when in fact it just isn't. And that prayer wasn't answered anyhow. <laughs> God stayed silent. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And the, yeah, the kind of uh, narcissism to suffering and depression and thinking it's like all about you, but uh, yeah, <laughs> he's, he's not, yeah. he's not Jesus. That's uh, something to chew on. Okay. So <laughs> back to the, the day of the, of the rededication, he, um, he looks out the window and he sees Mary uh, walking up the steps. Um, So then he starts to take off the vest. And um, what I thought was going to happen was that he was just going to blow himself up accidentally. Uh, So they didn't go that route. Um, That would have been a worse It's a very tense moment. (laughs) We should say like everyone's like, "Ah, what's going to happen? You have no idea. Yeah. And And there was singing, leaning on the everlasting arms over and over and over again in the background, which um, is ir- irony yes. for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, it, 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 what, that, what, the, the repetition of her of the choir director singing that song over and over again definitely amps up the tension. And then, mm-hmm. so he gets it off. Um, but what does he do? He pulls out some barbed wire that we had seen earlier. Him cleaning up from the cemetery uh, attached to the church and uh, starts wrapping it around his body. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did you how did you interpret? This, the, this, this decision. I mean, the imagery of it is pretty straightforward. It's the crown of thorns. Um, and it also is a sort of self-flagellation thing, which there is kind of a long history of um, the uh, very devout sects of Christianity deciding to sort of punish themselves. You know, it's a kind of penance, but like in a big way. Um, I So I would say that I don't interpret it. I was just like there there this is happening right or is it happening i mean that was the real question but um he he has um he has at that moment either realized what he's doing and decided to repent and punish himself for it or he's trying to feel so much pain that he hasn't been feeling like he's been numb and now he's trying to sort of feel all that pain um, because he can't do what he wanted to do because he just can't bear to blow up a church that Mary is inside of. Um, he also pours Drano into a cup that he's been drinking whiskey out of the entire movie and mm-hmm. starts to drink at that moment as well. Right. So, yeah, so then he's, he's like self-mutilated. 
he has this uh, he has the stuff wrapped around um and and then he puts his like um priestly garments like a cassock or whatever i'm not sure what the term yeah. is he puts them back on over but you see like some blood kind of coming mm-hmm. through the white and he has yeah he has his whiskey glass and he that's filled with drain out at this point um and then why don't, why don't you pick up from <laughs> how would you describe what yeah i mean he's gone from being a suicide bomber to i think just thinking of suicide like i think he's he's a possibility is he's intending to go into the church right then where all these people are seated, say something, drink the Drano and just sort of, you know, be up so shocking that people can't ignore it. Um, but nobody else would get hurt. That's one way of thinking about it. Another is that he's just lost his mind, which is a way of thinking about it. Um, and then the ending, the very ending, right? He's sort of gone through this and then he turns around and there, Mary is there. Um, and she comes to him and they kiss and the camera kind of goes around them. Um, and that's the end of the film. Uh, and this all happens really rapidly, which I think is important to note because the tension is just like everything in the movie happens at the end of the movie. It's kind of wild, but, um, but there are apparently a couple of ways to think about this. So, um, for some people, Mary is actually there. This is actually happening and we're watching a thing that's actually happening. Um, there's another interpretation that um, Schrader said about half the audience has, which is that he has drunk the Drano and he is dying. And God, who's been silent for the whole film, uh, even though he keeps asking him things and trying to get God to talk to him, um, is saying to him, well, this is the way Schrader put it, but um, that uh, he kind of reaches down and says, let me show you what heaven is like. Um, and heaven is like one long, slow kiss. Um, and that is sort of the experience his, his entry into heaven is that's not real. Mary's not really there, but that's, that's what has um, happened there. Um, and Schrader told me that you could, you know, he's perfectly happy with whatever people say, but he said, for instance, in an earlier cut of the film, there were footsteps so you could hear Mary coming in and people thought that meant that she was there. So he just decided to take out the footsteps. So the idea is like to be purposely vague. You can kind of see it either way and you're left wondering. And I think it's much more powerful for the fact that you really don't know what happened there at the end. And there's a couple ways to think about it. Um, all of those ways though, are a kind of redemption just a split second of it. It's so short. Um, but it's the only moment of, um, like peace or something in the film. It's a real, um, the idea that a person who is doing, who's intending to do a wicked thing, killing people, um, or potentially intending to do something that's deemed a sin, um, by some Christian denominations and certainly the one he's in suicide, um, that that person could still be not beyond saving um, from God's perspective is, is pretty wild. Um, But I think that actually is at least definitely embedded in the end, no matter how you kind of view the actual events there. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. The, the, the interpretation I had as a uh, (laughs) agnostic person was that this was an ecstatic vision before dying. That Mm -hmm. um, So no, not a supernatural intervention. But, yeah. um, but yeah, this was just his, his dying vision. The kiss lasts for a really long time, an unrealistically long time, um, for people who haven't seen the movie. Uh, yeah, but I, the, the, the interpretation that this is God granting him a vision of heaven is, is very interesting as well. 
Um, yeah. yeah, it's, it's a very effective ending and I, you know, there's people out there who do not like ambiguous endings. Um, and yeah. people do like oh. them. I guess I'm on the fence, uh, but I, I did like, I did like this one a lot. Um, yeah. So is there, we've covered the, we've covered the film. Is there, is there anything else you'd want to say about first reformed? Um, I just think it's really useful for people to go in knowing that it's going to be really challenging for them. Like it's challenging for me. I've seen it twice and both times it was just like, what did I just watch? Um, but that's on purpose. That's like, that's a feature, not a bug. Um, if you feel like it's standoffish from you or you feel like it's not an overly emotional thing, that's because it's not supposed to be. You're supposed to sort of really engage with the film. Um, and the other thing I want to say about it that I love is that, um, this film is being distributed by A24, um, which is, has made kind of a reputation as being like the art house distributor of choice. So the other movies they have, the other movie they have out right now is Hereditary, the horror films. They've mm-hmm. released these two films at the same time. They released Lady Bird. Like, that's kind of their brands. And I was so excited to see them pick up this film because I think that really does speak to a kind of seriousness um, in American art house cinema about things like faith and doubt alongside other kinds of considerations. Um, and that feels like a new movement for me um, in cinema. And it is very good to know that um, a film like this could find a distributor that is sort of the apex of like cool distribution. Um, do you, have you seen reaction from like uh, the Christian press about? Yeah. About it's mostly been good. In fact, Schrader um, has been surprised by how good it is. Um, a lot of people still assume that films like this will get the same kind of reaction that The Last Temptation of Christ did, um, like 27 or 28 years ago, where like theaters were being firebombed. It's not the same landscape at all as it as it was then. And um, I think a lot more people are attuned to the idea that a film like this could be meaningful and good, or at least that you don't need to you know, be violent about it. Um, so I think, you know, in general, what I've seen has been good. I've seen some versions of this that were far uh, of reviews of this that were far too literalist about the whole thing. And they were like, this is dumb. Like this would never happen. Sure. But there, there, are, uh, you know, there are a lot of good reviews out there worth reading. I think. Cool. Um, I think that's all I have. I, would, yeah, the, the, I saw the movie, um, over the weekend and it's like stuck with me and I'm still <laughs> thinking about his themes. Yeah. Um, so. I saw it first in September of last year at the Toronto film festival and like, couldn't stop thinking about it. And then I saw it again in like March or April and it still kind of stuck with me. So yeah, this one doesn't go away. Um, so thank you so much for coming yeah, thank on. You. Um, where can people find more of your work if they're interested? Yeah. Um, I, all my work is at Vox.com, V-O-X. Um, and I am extremely on Twitter as well. Um, and you can find me there. Uh, my handle is Alyssa Marie. Cool. And that is, uh, how would you spell Alyssa? A-L-I-S-S-A. Okay, cool. And your Twitter link will be below the video on Meaning of Life TV. Yeah. So thank you again for coming on. Thanks to all of our viewers and listeners. And we'll see you again next time. Thanks. Before you go, a quick message from the Suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. 
Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.